Let's pray. Lord, this morning, first I want to lift up a couple of little kids, a little boy named Bradley that you know, 10 years old, and a little girl named Ashanti. Lord, I want to pray for these little kids, boy and a girl. I want to pray for home. And I don't know what that looks like. I don't, we don't know what your plans are. But we have uh, kids that are being brought before us as a church that don't have a family and don't have a home. And Lord, our adoption into your family is something that compels us to lift them up and may compel some, some of us to adopt and may compel some of us to, to adopt specifically these children. What I pray is we gather to worship this morning and as we sit together over a meal of your word that, or that we will be a people that walk in what we're talking about, a people that are doing what we talk about. Lord, I pray as the Spirit leads that we would be responsive in these things that are put in front of us. Pray for this boy and this girl for home. Lord, also this morning I want to lift up another pastor and his wife and a church nearby, Dixon Baptist Church. And Lord, I confess, I don't even know the pastor's name. But I pray for them anyway. We lift them up. We pray for uh, their church as a whole. Lord, we pray for health. Pray for faithfulness. Pray for growth in your season and in your timing. And I pray for this pastor and his wife and his family and just or knowing the, uh, the unique challenges, the unique things that Satan does with a man that's supposed to stand and deliver each week. I pray for this man that's preaching maybe here in the next little while. Lord, I pray that you would guard his heart and guard his work from ever becoming a J-O-B. And Lord, I pray that if it does get to that point that the people at Dixon have the insight through the work of the Holy Spirit to bring this brother and his family alongside and put them in the pew for a while and feed them and tend to them and care for them. Lord, as the McGraws are coming off a couple of months worth of rest, I'm thankful for the rest. I'm thankful for how you ministered to us over these last these last few weeks. I'm thankful for some memories that we made together that were just, just priceless and uh, rich. I'm thankful, too, that on the day that I step back in the pulpit that I can trust and know that this pulpit hasn't changed and this church, church hasn't changed. This environment is bathed in grace and uh, patience and relentless love for each other. Thankful for that. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for a brother and his wife who are on the far corners of the field. 
I pray for Lance and Sarah Keeling, for Sarah as she is sick. Lord, I pray for healing. I pray for sound treatment. If that's your will to heal via that route, Lord, we share the desire of our heart for healing whatever method you may use, and we give you the glory in advance. Pray for Lance as maybe in a lot of ways he's having to attend to the kids as Sarah is sick. Lord, we pray for the work there. We pray that you'll be glorified in and through that feeble, frail work that's just, I'm thankful, is feeble and frail just the way this one is, that you'll be glorified through whatever happens through it. We pray for the people there in Teopisca. I pray for men, men that will love Jesus more than they love beer. And they will love their families because they love Jesus. And they'll love the church. And they'll come alongside Lance and serve him, serve you for your own glory. Thankful for the privilege that we have of coming alongside them in their work. Lord, lastly this morning before we climb into our meal that you've prepared for us, I pray the outcome of this morning and the next few weeks that we spend together will be a renewed awe. That we'll have the chance this morning and in the coming weeks to be reminded of your greatness. And that that will be glorifying for you, be a blessing to you, and that you'll use it to further your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Psalm 104, please. Preaching a psalm is not my favorite thing, and I'll be honest with you. I think it's because I'm not real creative and not real, um, I think I'm more linear. And psalms are not very linear. They're just sort of um, not. And um, some of y'all are very musical, write music and things like that, and you just, the psalms are your thing. And they're not my thing so much, but every time I do the work of climbing into them, I'm always thankful that I have. And this morning, we're going to climb into a psalm, Psalm 104, about God's greatness. I want to tell you right now, the title of this sermon this morning is God is Very Great. God is very great. What I'd like for you to do right now as I say that, God is very great, is I'd like for you to to do a little self-assessment. You're not grading yourself. You're not measuring yourself. What I want you to do in the next 20 seconds or so is to be real honest with yourself about how God, how great God is to you for real. We'll call it an awe score, A-W-E. To give yourself an awe score between zero and 100 with zero being yawn, And 100 being, I'm about to put on a loincloth and dance around this sanctuary, God, so awesome. All right, nobody's there because everybody's still seated, so it's okay. (laughs) And I didn't see anybody visibly yawn. But what I want you to do is be really honest with yourself. 
to be really honest about when I say God is great, not to do the typical Christian thing where we say, yeah, he is all the time. God is great all the time. But just be really honest, just with yourself. You don't have to disclose that number to anyone. It's between you and the Lord. And I promise you, the Lord can take it if you're down in the low end. But be really honest. Maybe write that number down. If you don't want to write it down, just remember it. Because we're going to come back to that awe score at the end of the morning. It's going to be very important that you've grabbed a number right now. Some of you are like me, maybe too linear and too compartmental. You're like, man, I can't put a number on that. I just, it depends. Put down the number, first number that comes to mind, and write it down or remember it because it's something that will come full circle. God is very great is the title of the morning. Psalm 104, let me give you a little context. We don't know who the author is. Psalm 103 and Psalm 104, very similar Their structure, the way they start, the way they end. Psalm 103, we know, is a psalm of David because it says so. So we can have some sense about the context that it was sometime during David's uh, either pre-reign or during his reign. But Psalm 104, we don't know who the author is and we don't know the context. All we know is it's very similar to Psalm 103. Psalm 103 is about God's glory as Redeemer. Psalm 104 is about God's glory as creator. So they're nice compliments to each other, but we don't know a whole lot about who wrote Psalm 104. Just to give you a sense of what this person is like, this psalmist, whoever it might be, this guy or gal, whoever we don't know, over the course of this psalm shifts between first, second, and third person. He breaks all the literary rules of you English teachers in here that say stick with a person and, and stick with it. This person in some ways, this psalmist, in some ways is what I'm going to just say is a wash in glory. He's lost his complete bearing. He doesn't even know who he's looking at. Is he talking to himself, looking in the mirror? Is he talking to God or is he talking to his buddies? Yes, all of the above. The psalm is just like a dance. Like more like a washing machine, a glory washing machine, and he is a wash. We're not going to spend a lot of time focusing on the persons, what person is he speaking in or writing in, but it's something that you can pay attention to and note. Just in the first few verses, you see him talking to himself. You see him praising God, and you see him talking to his buddies about how awesome God is. I enjoy seeing it. He's a wash in glory, and he's not linear. He's not like me, and I want to be like him. Psalm 103 is about God as redeemer. Psalm 104 is about God's glory as creator. This psalm, in a lot of ways, corresponds to the creation week. I'm going to point some things out to you as we go that connect to the creation week. We're not going to turn there. We're we're not going to read it, but it's probably some things that you're familiar with, some things that are created on certain days. Now, let me also give you this, this, this sort of layout for the psalm. It forms a chiasm. If you've been around Crosspoint for a while, you know that there are occasions where we see a chiasm and... And you're familiar with that. Those of you who haven't, let me give you just sort of a general description of what a chiasm is. It's something that the psalmist or a writer or an author in some context is going to use as a literary device to accentuate 
some point. The chiasm in this case, you could just think of sort of like a Christmas tree. I thought that might be a nice way to do it because you want to put the most special thing right up on top. So think of the Christmas tree this way. I'm going to break it down for you. If you want to take notes, this is the way the Christmas tree lays out. You can do it as a pyramid. You can do it however you want to do it. You may not even do it at all. You might just go, oh, that's nifty. But it's going to be our plan for the morning. That's why it matters of how we unpack this psalm. Down at the bottom of the tree on each side are going to be these big Christmas ornaments, big shiny Christmas ornaments about God's splendor, His royal splendor. On this side of the Christmas tree will be Psalm 104, verses 1 through 4. Royal splendor. On the other side of the Christmas tree, if you're drawing your little diagram there, is also about His royal splendor, verses 31 through 35. Beautiful, shiny Christmas ornaments at the bottom of the tree on opposite sides. Come up the tree a little bit on this side is going to be the formation of the earth, verses 5 through 9. God's glory in the formation of the earth. On the opposite side of the Christmas tree, corresponding to that, is God's glory in the sustenance of the earth, His provision for the earth, and that's verses 27 through 30. We're working our way to the middle of the psalm if you're paying attention. You come up the Christmas tree, and you're going to see on this side, creating animals, verses 10 through 18, and corresponding to that, more creating animals, verses 24 through 26. And at the very top of the Christmas tree, what's really being accentuated here in this psalm, verses 19 through 23, is the regularity of creation regularity of creation. Now, the reason I should go through the effort to share this design with you, because this is how, this is the flow we're going to follow this morning. We're going to sort of work our way up the Christmas tree. We will actually land with royal splendor and start with royal splendor, but we're going to spend a nice amount of time with the animals and with the regularity of creation. We're going to follow his form and what he seems to be accentuating. Verses one through four, we're going to break this down a little section at a time. As I read, verses 1 through 4 about royal splendor, the first shiny Christmas tree ornament. Bless the Lord, O my soul. I'm so thankful for the song set this morning. Y'all did such a great job of, and the Holy Spirit was involved in that, but the songs that we sang sound like they were just taken right from this psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flame of fire. Now, if you're paying attention, you notice right there in the first few verses, first, second, and third person. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's looking in the mirror. God is awesome. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He turns to God. O Lord, my God, you are very great. By verse 3, he's talking to his buddies. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. You also see in this first four verses a couple of key verbs. Now, one of them's concealed. The first key verb in this passage that helps us make sense of the rest of the psalm is actually in our translation, not even a verb. It's the word great. 
The word great for most of us, the word that as it's used here, the word great is going to be an adjective or it's going to be a noun sometimes. Somebody might be referring to the greats and using it as a noun. Usually it's word used as an adjective. But in the Hebrew, it's a verb. It's the first of two important verbs that help us make sense of the rest of the psalm. This verb translated better for us would read like, you do very greatly. You do very greatly. We'd have to make up a new version of the word great to really bring out what's being, and I was tempted to make one up, but we'll stick with you do very greatly, the first verb. The second verb that helps us make sense of the rest of the psalm is he is clothed. He is clothed with splendor and majesty. That second verb is clothed. What you can't see here is that in the Hebrew, it's a reflexive verb. He has clothed himself with splendor and majesty. You do very greatly, and you have clothed yourself with splendor and majesty. Those two verbs will help us make sense here in a moment of how the rest of this psalm lays out. I was looking at splendor and majesty. I wanted to make sense of splendor and majesty. Every time I see words that we use all the time, I want to really understand what they mean. And ironically, the word splendor and majesty, as hard as I searched, I didn't really find any good definitions for splendor and majesty. The worst thing I could do is go to the, to the Webster's and try and get English to decipher what that means. I wanted to go to the Hebrew and in the Hebrew, they're just ancient words that we don't really have a good sense of what they mean. The closest I found for either of them was the word vigor as related to splendor. I'm like, oh, I like vigor. I can do vigor because I can see vigor like this muscle-taut bull out on the field. Vigor, he's vigorous, strong. Splendor, I've never fit, fit with vigor, but I like that connection. That's something we can come back to later. And I realized all the effort that I was spending trying to understand splendor and majesty is really unnecessary because through the rest of the psalm, he explains it. I can define it or we can just let him explain it and illustrate it. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Instead of spending a lot of time trying to define something that's really hard to define, we'll let the rest of the psalm illustrate it. The splendor and majesty of our God. So things that are brought out here in these first four verses is that he stretches the heavens out like pitching a tent. Some of you guys are campers. Some of you guys know what's involved with pitching a tent. We have a North Face tent that's large enough for our, enti our entire family to crawl into. We've spent enough time in it to where I can pitch that tent in probably five or ten minutes. And the picture here, you could just put two letters, E-Z. Easy for our God. And we're talking about the heavens. We're not talking about a North Face tent that weighs five pounds. We're talking about the expanse of the heavens, the farthest stars you can see and the stars you can't. The galaxies, all of it, he pitches like a North Face tent. He does very greatly. Something I enjoyed too, the images here of the light beams as the beams of his chamber. I found what that means, what that, if you want to understand what's being said there, some of you have made a trip to the beach recently. I think Scott and Lindsay made a trip to the beach. Some of you made a trip to the beach this summer. You know those beach houses that have the beams where this house is actually sitting up on some stilts? 
Imagine this invisible, glorious, awesome chamber of God with the beams of that chamber being the beams. Put that picture up here. Putting the, as the beams, the structure for that chamber, what it rests on. Man, that's glorious. It's hard to take in from this picture. I robbed all kind of stuff on on, the internet last night, getting pictures for this. And this is one that I found that looks good on my computer, but it didn't really bring out here. These beams are coming down through that light, through that hole in the clouds. Beautiful picture of the beams of his chamber. Considering, too, that the clouds are his chariot and he rides the wings of the wind. All those things together, him pitching a tent as in easy. The light beams is the beams of his chamber, the clouds being his chariot, the fact that he rides the wings of the wind. All those things point to his transcendence. All of them point to him being lofty, to him being separate, to him being high and lifted up and great and mighty. And while he's all those things, when you take them with the two verbs that are brought out here, you do very greatly and you are clothed with splendor and majesty. And what unfolds in the rest of the psalm, what the point that's being made in the introduction here is this. God is transcendent, yet God is very active in the world. He is doing very greatly in our world, in our context, and clothing himself with splendor and majesty. He's expecting recognition for it. I want want that to sit on you for a minute. He's doing very greatly in the world, and he's expecting recognition for it. He's clothed himself in splendor and majesty. Let's look at the next few verses, beginning in verse 5. Forming the earth, his glory in forming the earth. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. This, these passages here correspond to day three of creation where he separates the waters from above and below and he separates the land from water. He says, ocean, you're going to be right here. Mountain, you're going to be right here. The language that's used here is military language in the Hebrew. Martial military language. These words like rebuke, like thunder, like appoint and set. They should give us the image of like a general to his legions. Came back from Italy this summer, and a high point of our trip being in Italy was seeing the Colosseum, and we had a plan as a family to watch Gladiator. We had to shield Daniel from portions of it. But we watched Gladiator as a family, and there were moments in that movie, especially in the beginning, Maximus is commanding his troops, hold the line. And thinking about the presence this guy had as he walked through the troops, and they're like, hey, general, hey, general. And he's 
cuffing a guy on the side of his head. Hey, buddy. This presence, this relationship, but this power and control that this general had over his troops. Hold the line. They're in the thick of battle, and the line is listening to their general and thinking about the mountains being piled up when the general says, you go there, Alps, at Mount Iger. You go right there. Mediterranean, you over here. Caribbean, you right there. Atlantic, Pacific. And the troops, like Maximus's troops, are saying, Yes, sir. How fast? How high? How cold do you want me to be? What color of blue do you want me to be? Man. How high and how ragged? How jagged? How much snow do you want me to have? Man, that's what's being displayed here. This God is very great in commanding the mountains to pile up. The Ozarks, the Appalachians, the Rockies, the Alps. And commanding the the oceans to go where they're supposed to go. What an awesome God. What a powerful God. One of the things I enjoyed in this passage was the valleys. One of my favorite places on earth is Hayden Valley. Christy and I were dating Years ago, before we were married and spending time in Yellowstone, and Hayden Valley was always a place that left me pretty speechless. Hayden Valley is this little section of Yellowstone that's between Fishing Bridge and Canyon. It's an area of Yellowstone that's, that, that you can't fish. You don't see fly fishermen out there in the Yellowstone through Hayden Valley. All you see in Hayden Valley is bison, Canada geese, You might see an elk, and you see the Yellowstone just meandering through it, one of the most beautiful rivers I've ever seen. And I'm looking at the Hayden Valley, and I'm thinking about this passage, and I'm unpacking this passage, and I'm remembering our moments there and thinking about God saying, Hayden Valley, you go right there. You stay right there, and you put my glory on display for thousands of years. That's how very great... Our God is. He does very greatly. Let's move up the Christmas tree. We're going to look at both sides of the Christmas tree in this next section on creating the animals, his glory in creating the animals, beginning in verse 10. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, The cedars of Lebanon that he planted, in them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. Skip on down to verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you've made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable living things both small and great. 
There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. Some of the creatures that are named in these passages, it's obviously not exhaustive. Wild donkeys, thankful that wild donkeys are in there. He didn't start with something really impressive and regal. He started with wild donkeys. Right behind our house where there are no creek estates, somebody's raising some donkeys out there that I assume are wild or not. I mean, they're, they're not domesticated. They're not pets. They're probably not wild. They're somewhere in between. <laughs> but they're just obnoxious, dirty. Don's laughing because, you know, they make, they're so noisy. They drive my dog crazy. Wild donkeys, of all things. Birds, livestock, man is listed in there. Wild goats, the stork and the rock badger, both of which are unclean. I'm thankful there's some unclean animals that are listed in there that we didn't just have to go with the clean critters. And then there's sea creatures, small and great, and Leviathan. In preparing for this morning and looking through this passage and thinking about that he is through this psalm putting on display God's very greatness, his splendor and his majesty and thinking about so much airtime is given to creating the animals. And then I'm thinking, wait a minute. There's plenty of airtime given to creatures from the very beginning. I asked myself the question, and you should ask yourself the question this morning. Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever considered that he could have made the earth Without animals? You ever thought about that? He could have made the earth without animals. There would be no barbecue joints, no ribs, Luke, no meatloaf. It would be tragic. We would all be vegetarians. You can think about some of the early stories, some of the first things that we encounter in our Bibles. What would Adam and Eve have been clothed in? In Genesis chapter 3, God killed an animal to provide the skins for Adam and Eve. He made garments of skins. Just wouldn't have worked that it said garments of ivy, garments of kudzu. What would the sacrificial system have been without animals? Leviticus would be a lot shorter be a lot less bloody. I think about Hebrews, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And I think, what would that read if it said, without the shedding of tomato juice, there's no remission of sins? It just lacks power, oomph. You ever thought about why he made animals? How much air time in creation, in the creation week, is given to creating the animals. He goes into so much detail about what kinds of animals, where they live, big or small. And he made these animals before he made man. And then Adam named the animals before he made Eve. And considering if his splendor and his majesty is on display in his creatures, I have to ask myself the question, do I really spend time to consider his glory in creatures? In creatures. Consider for a minute the dog. The dog. The reason I consider that is because most of you have one, or if you don't have one, chances are you've seen one. (laughs) You've been around them. 
something we can all relate to. Just consider for a moment the dog. I grew up in the home of a veterinarian. My dad just retired a few years ago. All my child life, childhood life was spent um, going, coming and going at the animal clinic. And a good portion of it was spent working for free at the animal clinic, mind you. And working for food, my dad would say. <laughs> I spent a lot of time with my dad at the animal clinic, seeing patients come and go, seeing their owners come and go. In our second exam room, we had a poster on the wall that was an AKC breed poster. And I, it may still be there. My dad's since sold his practice, so they may have upgraded. But that thing was there right up until the time that he retired, from what I recall. It had every breed that was in the AKC on this poster, and I used to stand in front of that poster for hours, really, as I'm looking, waiting for, potion, for patients to come in, waiting for dad to put me to work. I would stand in front of that thing and memorize and learn all the different breeds, and I would think about why God would make things so different, why, how they could all be canine, and yet they could be so different. Teacup-sized dogs that my dog could eat teacup size dogs, and then big dogs and everything in between. I used to consider retrievers. I've been preparing for this sermon today, just considering a retriever for a minute. Consider for a moment that God could make an animal that wants nothing more according to his own desires and his own drive than to eat a bird. Nothing more in his entire being wants more that he wants more than to actually eat and devour a bird. Yet God gave us this animal that we can teach and train. We can call him by name, and he can come to his name, and we can send him out to go pick up that thing that everything in him wants to eat, and that he can bring that thing back to you so you can put it in your game bag. Tell me that's not cool. Tell me that's not cool that God couldn't, that he didn't make a critter that, first of all, we would actually call by name that would come to us that we could pet, that would look at us. And when we did something silly, turn his head and look at us like, what are you doing? (laughs) Have you ever thought about that? Just think about that for a moment, where his splendor and his majesty would be on display in your dog. And just a pet. That this thing wants nothing more than to please you. Man, when you really think about it, you can see splendor and majesty. You think about how else dogs are used, working dogs. At some point, Luke will probably have a seeing-eye dog. I love the thought of that, that a dog could help keep him out of the street. How cool is that? That God would make a critter that would keep man out of the street. How cool is it that God would make a critter that could smell drugs or bombs and keep a dude from having his leg blown off? How cool is it that we have a God that would make critters that work for us like that? How cool is it that he would make a critter that you can ride, Brad? That you can ride as you swing a rope and rope another critter? (laughs) I mean, seriously, if you think about it for a minute, you just have to, if you think about it, which is what, remember, he wants us to do, then you have to enjoy his glory and his majesty and his very greatness in making things like this. I won't even go into cats I've never experienced a critter that's more humbling than a cat. Comes only when he wants to and looks at me all day long like you know I'm just using you. 
Man, I think there's a clue of what God is up to in all the critterdom out there. That in verse 24, we read just now, O oh Lord, how manifold are your works. When he's talking about the animals, how manifold are, are your works. His glory and his majesty and his splendor are on display in how manifold the creatures are. In how different they are. In the different purposes that they serve in their different characteristics, some such variety from scales to hair to feathers, different colors, different kinds of eyes, different shapes from the sloth to the cheetah, from the naked mole rat to the ibex, from the stink bug to the Andean condor. Think about it for a minute. Why would he spend so much time on stuff like that? So that we could enjoy his manifold works. That he would actually make a critter with a helmet on his back. We have a big tortoise. This thing got away from us one time. Somebody left the gate open. He was out grazing in our yard. He's about he's this big. And I said, I bet I know where he's going because I know where I'd go if I was a tortoise. So I followed him down the alley behind my neighbor's house, and sure enough, I saw what looked like a helmet just moving right down the ditch, right down the alley back there. That God would make a critter with a helmet on his back that he could retract into so that he could be safe and protected, but yet that he could pick it up and move around at any moment. How cool is that God? His manifold glory, his manifold works, he does very greatly and is clothed with splendor and majesty. Now, let's get to the top of the Christmas tree. The regularity in creation, beginning in verse 19. Let's look at this together. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. You make darkness and it's night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to work and to his labor until evening. The centerpiece of this psalm has to do with the regularity of creation and to consider together as worshipers how great is our God that he would create all of creation, but not just create it as this static creation, but that he would create creation in motion. That he would actually make something that is renewing, that is cycling, that is perpetuating life always. As things are dying, things are being renewed. That he's built seasons into all of creation. That just screams to me of vigor. Vigor. And vitality. A theologian, Bernard Anderson, called it creatio continua. Listen to what he said. Creation is not just an event that occurred in the beginning at the foundation of the earth, but it's God's continuing activity of sustaining creatures and holding everything in being. Now, I'm going to tell you something. A God that would make creation is a pretty awesome God. But a God that would make creation that renews itself and that perpetuates itself and that keeps it in, keeps it in motion with seasons and with evenings and mornings, now that is a God who is working very greatly. The seasons... 
seasons alone are something worth enjoying and considering. I was stationed in Southern California for about five years of my active duty, four years of my active duty experience just south of L.A. and just north of San Diego. Beautiful, beautiful place to live. But there are no seasons. There's one season. It's always pretty. Always pretty. Always comfortable. Seldom hot. There's no winter. It might get cool at night or cool in the morning. But I miss the seasons when I live there. The thing that ironically I couldn't wait to get, get I couldn't wait to get away from when I left Louisiana to go off to college and then left Texas to go off into the active duty service. I couldn't wait to get away from seasons and I missed them. The seasons are a blessing from the Lord. Seasons are a time where things die and things are born. We have a chance to start over. We have a chance to regroup. We have a chance to re-engage. We have a chance to do different things as a family. Some of our traditions that we experience as a family, they're born and grounded in seasons that if it were seasonless and just one season, we would miss out on. Some things that we get to do together as a people are connected to the seasons. I'm thankful for a God that's made seasons, that gives us a spring and a chance to start over, and even gives us a winter when we're cold and needy and have to huddle up together. I'm also thankful for a God that's given us darkness and mourning. Darkness has developed a little bit in this passage. Look at verse, uh, in this passage in verse 19. He made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun to know it's time for setting. You made darkness. And it's night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. We were home visiting my family in Louisiana. It's probably been a year ago by this point. It's the first time I ever remember Christy saying something about the noise outside on the back porch. I grew up in the middle of what is now called, it was called then as well, by Beth Swamp, Bayou Beth Swamp. It doesn't look like a swamp proper, for the most part, right at our home base. But as you step out into the woods, you see cypress, you see um, moss, Spanish moss, you see water standing here and there, you see little sloughs, little bayous, and that's where I grew up, hunting and fishing. And I grew up oftentimes stepping out at night for one reason or another, to go feed the dogs or do whatever Dad needed me to do or step outside for one reason or another. And what I realized just recently, and I recorded it, and I'm going to play it for you here in a moment, was something that Christy was hearing and seeing in some ways, not for the first time, but for the first of a few times. She didn't grow up hearing this. She heard it when I didn't. The sounds that God created of darkness when all the creepy crawlies come out. Play that audio. Listen to the sounds of Bybeth Swamp just outside Alexander, Louisiana, where I grew up. Listen to the night. I recorded that not planning to play that this morning. I just recorded it because I heard it through Christy's ears. And I said, I want to capture that. I want to capture that. It's almost so loud at times that you almost have to shout at each other if you're sitting out on the back porch talking. 
It's hard to capture through an iPhone, but that our God would make a darkness, an evening where all these critters could come out, all these cicadas, where the screech owl could come out and go hunting, where the axis deer, not in Alexandria, not in Louisiana, but have you ever heard an axis deer screech? That he would do these things at night, create these evenings where all these critters would come out and feed and flourish, and then he would create the morning. Some of the sweetest mornings I've ever experienced, I experienced as a boy, my dad taking me to hunt. Now, when I tell you what kind of hunting, some of you are going to be grossed out, but just know that in Louisiana, we eat pretty much everything. So we ate squirrels. And I still eat squirrels, so it's just part of my heritage and my culture. But I grew up going squirrel hunting or duck hunting with my dad oftentimes in the morning. And some of my sweetest experiences were stepping out into the woods and hearing that, that symphony of cicadas and every other kind of critter that you could think of and bullfrogs. And when it's so dark, you can hardly find a place to sit down. And you're holding your little shotgun and you're half cold, half scared because you're sitting by yourself. And then it's almost like a shift change where all those things start shutting down and the squirrels come barreling out of the trees. I don't know why they come barreling out like they've been starving all night or they're thirsty, but they come barreling out like they can't wait to get out of their nest. And where the wood ducks come screaming through the trees. Some of you know what I'm talking about. That And they're screaming through the trees, flying so fast. You can't believe that anything could be that aerobatic. And God did that for his own glory. God did that so dads and boys could sit together and marvel at the greatness of God. Man, what a symphony of glory we have surrounding us if we will but stop and listen. At this shift change, man goes to work and the screech owls go to bed. Look at verse 27 through 30. This seasonal thing is illustrated. We're getting close to the end of the tree. This little section, the last section is all we have left. Verse 27, look at this. This is going to illustrate the top of the Christmas tree. These all look to you, all these manifold creatures. They look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. This is the first season of plenty, which we've all experienced. Animals experience those seasons of plenty too. When you see that cardinal in your yard in spring where he's fat and he's got plenty God is providing for him. And that cardinal, you may not think about this, but you should in light of this psalm. Think about that cardinal. You think he's just looking for a worm. He's looking for a worm from his creator's hand. Connect God to that moment, to that visual. As you see that cardinal in time of plenty, filled with good things from God's hand. And consider, too, that this God provides endless menus to manifold creatures all over the world. What a great and glorious God that does this in seasons of plenty. And as the passage continues, we see with the next season, 
Verse 29, when you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. That's the next two seasons, the season of dismay and then the season of death. The season of dismay you might see in a squirrel that's looking for a nut that he can't figure out where in the world he buried it. Season of dismay. Or you see that cardinal in the dead of winter. Cardinals are not migratory. That's why you see them. When snow's out, we don't have a lot of that, but you've seen pictures of a beautiful red cardinal in a snowy background. It's not a season of plenty. It's a season of dismay. And then there's seasons of death. In his time, in God's time, the sparrow falls to the ground in the woods, but never without this God's knowing it. What a great very great God. Let's close this with verse 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth. Let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. When you consider his very greatness, when you consider his splendor and his majesty, which we didn't define, but we saw beautifully illustrated in this passage, when you consider his manifold works, from the mole rat to the condor, How can we not sing? How can we not sing? And when we sing, it's meditation to him, and it's pleasing. As I was preparing this sermon this week, early on in the week, I thought of all creatures of our God and King, and I've sung it a thousand times more probably But I've never really looked at the lyrics that you don't often sing. All creatures of our God and King were written by St. Francis of Assisi in 1225 A.D. And they were likely written, I'm suspecting, from a guy who had immersed himself in this psalm. Listen to what he says in this psalm. This song was written in 1225 A.D. And it was lost for 400 years. And we have a chance to sing it. We're going to sing it here in a little while. But just listen to these words. All creatures of our God and King. Okay, this singer here, St. Francis, is talking to creation. Lift up your voice and with us sing. Critters, cicadas, sing with us. All creatures with our, of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. Alleluia. Alleluia. Thou burning sun with golden beam, thou silver moon with softer gleam, praise him, sun. Praise him, moon. Alleluia. Alleluia. Thou rushing wind that art so strong, ye clouds that sail in heaven along, praise him. Praise him. Alleluia. Thou rising moon, in praise rejoice. Ye lights of evening, 
find a voice. Thou flowing water, pure and clear, make music for thy Lord to hear. Oh, praise him. Alleluia. Thou fire so masterful and bright, thou givest man both warmth and light. Dear Mother Earth, who day by day unfoldeth blessing on our way, oh, praise him. Alleluia. The flowers and fruits that in thee grow, let them his glory also show. And all ye men of tender heart, forgiving others, take your part. O sing ye, alleluia. Ye who long pain and sorrow bear, praise God, and on him cast your care. And thou most kind and gentle death, waiting to hush our latest breath, praise him, Hallelujah. Thou leadest home the child of God, and Christ our Lord the way hath trod. Let all things their creator bless. All things. And worship him in humbleness. Oh, praise him. Hallelujah. Praise the Father. Praise the Son. Praise the Spirit. Three in one. I have a video that I've asked to be queued up that I want to play for you. It was done by our kids. And then I have a question to ask you. Let's play that video. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You cover you covered it with the with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for the man cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, and the cedars of Lebanon that he planted in them, the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goat. The rocks are for are a refuge for the rocks for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man 
goes out to his work and to his labor in the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is a sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I'll sing to the Lord as long as I live. I'll sing praise to my God, where I have been. May my benediction be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. That's rich, isn't it? From the mouths of babes. That psalm ends with sort of a request that sinners be consumed from the earth, the wicked be no more, that... The point there is that those who aren't enjoying our God like this are no different from the wicked and the sinners because they don't care. They don't connect it to our Creator. And that's how beautiful it is when you just take the time to consider. Take the time to consider the glory of the Lord in creation. I asked you to do something at the beginning of the morning today, do an awe score. I'm going to ask you to do it again. I want you to consider the number that you represented at the beginning of our morning. And then to consider just in light of some things that we ate in the last few minutes. Some things that we saw. Some things that we heard. If that's moved at all. Has it moved in the direction of 100 for you? If it moved for you, then I think you're like me. Because what I've found in my life and what is the point of this morning and what's going to be the point of these next few weeks that we spend together is I find in my life that all decays. I don't know why it is, but all decays. And I don't know if it's just this constant contact with the divine that makes it so familiar to me. What I realize is that all decays, then it's no longer contagious. There's no longer passion about the gospel like Bill preached on the last few weeks. I realized if all decays and is left unchecked, then who in the world wants what we've got? If all decays and it's left unchecked, then every single thing that you face day in and day out, all these problems, all these issues that you face from day in, day out, and we all have our versions, I've got them too, they are massive and colossal if all decays. But if all is renewed and stirred up, if we take some time to consider the greatness and the glory of God, then man, those things just seem pale. They're still there, but they seem at least blurry. 
Because we know the creator. We know the one that's behind this psalm. We enjoyed the one that was behind this psalm, and he took us somewhere that leaves us handling situations different. If all decays and left unchecked, then man, what in the world could happen to us? This summer, we had the chance to go to a number of different places, and one of those was the Alps. We went to um, Interlaken, Switzerland, and we got to see two mountains that are primarily two mountains in that area, Eiger Mountain, which is a famous mountain climbing mountain. Eiger Mountain and Jungfrau was another one. And from Interlaken, you can see these mountains. Interlaken, it just you leave you breathless. It's so beautiful. We checked into a hotel. It was the Merkur Hotel. And the lady that was the clerk there behind the counter was sort of crabby. She was unfriendly. She was crabby. She tried to charge us more than we were supposed to get charged. But on top of that, she's just grumpy. And I thought as I was spending time preparing this sermon about what that's really like to live in the Alps and to really miss out, I wonder if this woman, when she's driving into work in the morning, if she takes but a moment and rolls down her European diesel-driven car that's made that about this big and looks out the window and considers for a moment, look where I get to live. Look where I get to work. But she's in constant contact with it, and I wonder if that ever affects her. And then I wonder if we're any different. We're in constant contact with something that's so much better than Jungfrau or Eiger or the Alps. Something, because that's terminal. That has it. That's, that's finite. We're in constant contact with the infinite glories of a living God. And yet we can come off as crabby and grumpy because we haven't rolled down the window and taken a moment to take in the glories of our God. We had two different tour guides when we were in Italy. One was named Emiliano, and one was named Laura. Laura was our guide in Rome, and Emiliano was our guide in Pompeii. Some of you know your history. You know about Pompeii. It was a city that 60-something A.D. was covered by Vesuvius ash, not lava, but ash. Vesuvius is a volcano. And what effectively happened there is this ash preserved this ancient city. Now, Laura... She's our guide in in Rome. Laura, as far as I know, grew up in Rome, or she's at least an Italian lady by birth, and she knew the ins and outs of every single thing that we saw in Rome, and she enjoyed it. You could tell she was just caught up in it. She loved everything about Rome, and she connected ancient church history to Roman Empire history to Rome to what's going on all over the Roman Empire. She connected the dots because she loved it. Contrast that with Emiliano in Pompeii. Emiliano had his doctorate in archaeology. Emiliano is giving us a tour of Pompeii, and while he's giving us a tour of one of the most amazing preserved cities in the world, he's looking at his watch and yawning. Yawning. And I thought, Lord, by your grace and your mercy, may we never be, when it comes to the glories of God, Emiliano's. May we be Lauras that are caught up in the glories of our infinite God because Laura was contagious, Emiliano not so much.
not so much. Now, what that's done is it's given those sort of thoughts and those sort of considerations has given birth to a series of sermons. This was the first of which that we're going to call the Awe Series. Psalm 145 says this, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. We can't declare mighty acts and mighty works to one another we're not considering on our own. If all you've got to share with people and all you've got to share with your family is your own little list of all the stuff that you're messing with and messed up with, and you never expose the glories of God to anybody else or anybody that you're walking with, then you're not fulfilling your responsibility right there where we commend the works of God to another. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. The works speak of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The works pour forth. If we'll take the time to consider God's great and glorious works this week and in the coming weeks, and let our all be renewed if it needs it. Mine needs it because mine decays. If yours decays like mine, then we need this. All right, let me pray, and then we're going to have our Lord's Supper together. Lord, I pray for this sermon as it's been sown at this point. Lord, I pray it finds some purchase. I pray that what happens as a result of the time that we've spent together in Psalm 104 is that we as a people can consider your manifold works and your splendor and your majesty, maybe even just in our pet, in a dog that comes to us when we call him, in a cat that lets us pet it, in a V of Canada geese that come flying over, in just the small things that us all day and every single day and scream of your glory that we can be a people that consider the lilies that can take in the small things that declare your glory and your manifold works i'm thankful that you've given us such complexities such very varieties such manifold the differences in animal kingdom and critter kingdom that we can enjoy. And I pray, Lord, that it won't be terminal and that we just enjoy them for their sake, but that they point to you and we see that connection. That as the squirrel comes barreling out and as the wood duck comes screaming through the trees, that we consider your splendor and your majesty. Lord, I pray tonight that maybe some families will consider your glory in a way that they haven't. And that together our awe will be moved in the direction of 100. I'm thankful in advance for the rest of this series because I need it. I'm thankful in advance that, that you renew us as we look for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, the Lord's Supper actually is coming from our Psalm 104. Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. 
Now, I feel like I'm sort of in dangerous territory here to deal with what is being said here about wine because contextually, we're in a very unique environment. I don't know, the rest of the world doesn't handle alcohol the way we do in our context. And I, this is not a pro-alcohol point. I, w- I want you to go where I'm going in this Lord's Supper. What's being said here about a glass of wine? Okay, we're not talking about somebody getting drunk. What's being said here about a glass of wine? Is that if it's taken in faith, that it's something that can gladden the heart of man. The same thing's being said here about food, except it's not for enjoyment, it's for sustenance. It strengthens man. So God is providing for the things that are absolutely necessary, and he's also providing for some things that are actually enjoyable. We have that kind of God. Please don't hear me encouraging everybody go get tore up. It's such a weird context we're in when it comes to alcohol. And I get it. There are lives that have been destroyed through alcoholism and things like that. I understand that. That I'm not touching that. I'm touching the passage here, dealing with the passage, what God said. He sends the rain so the rain can water the vineyard, so the vineyard can bear fruit. And that fruit can be fermented into something that's nothing more than for enjoyment. That's the kind of God that we have. He can do that. It's not for hydration. Some folks want to deal with ancient alcohol in our Bible, or excuse me, ancient wine in our Bible as, oh, well, that was just to stay hydrated. Wine is not, is, is diuretic. That doesn't work. It's for enjoyment. And then the bread is for strength. What I want you to see and what we're about to take is those things here that are shadow at this point. Christ hasn't come at this point. They are fulfilled in Christ where he says, I will be your enjoyment as you consider the blood that was shed for you, the cup. See, I know there's baggage. If you can set that baggage aside for long enough and know that it's not a pro-alcohol point and just hear what's being said here, it's for the purpose of enjoyment. Take and drink and enjoy the blood that was shed for you. Man, That's enjoying a created thing that points to his glory. In in some ways, we're illustrating right here as we take the cup and the bread, the point of the sermon. And as we take the bread, the rain and the streams that he sends to water the earth, to water the field, to water the wheat, that actually becomes bread eventually, is what was broken for you. Man, we can take and eat and find strength and find enjoyment in God. Let's do that together.